Well, we're continuing on in our series on James. Uh, This week, I'm really excited. Uh, It's the final message in the first sermon of James. Uh, James, we've seen as a collection of four sermons. And this is the final one on this topic of trials and Christian maturity. And really this week, as we read it, we're going to be learning from James about the key to avoiding wasting your suffering. Uh, James wants to show us one of the traps and really the key to avoid that. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, why don't you open them up to James chapter 1, and we're going to be reading from verse 13. It's also page 18 in your companion journal, if you have that with you. James 1:13. This is the Word of God. Let no one say... When he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. By his own desire. Then desire, when it conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. Of his creatures. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning with bowed knees. We ask that you'd speak to us, Lord, this morning. Help us. Help us see afresh this morning. Your sovereign goodness. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, I wanted to begin with reading an a article that's been in the papers uh, all this week uh, from the Sydney Morning Herald. And uh, it's written by Stephanie Gardner of the Sydney Morning Herald. And, and she writes the following uh, last Sunday on the 13th. She writes, A group of lifelong friends gathered at a unit in Cronulla for a baby shower. Late in the evening, some of the women's partners joined them, and the group spent the night celebrating. About 1am, a woman burst out of a bedroom screaming she had woken up to find her friend's slimeball boyfriend raping her. The man, who cannot be identified, told police he drunkenly went into the wrong bedroom and thought he was in bed with his girlfriend. 
He denied any sexual activity. A jury found him guilty of one count of sexual intercourse without consent in 2015, and he was sentenced to a minimum of three years jail with a maximum of five years and nine months. The man appealed against his conviction and sentence in the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal, arguing he had an honest and reasonable but mistaken belief the victim was his girlfriend. The court last week dismissed the man's appeal in a decision that emphasised accused rapists cannot use intoxication in their defence. Why do I bring up this article? The defence of this man is so ridiculous. If it weren't for the horrific content of the charge against him, it would have presented almost a humorous situation. The reason why I chose this article is that it highlights a problem that we all share, actually. A problem that's old as humanity. Two words that describe a tendency of not just this man, but all people across all ages. What are those two words? Blame shifting. Blame shifting. Blame shifting refers to our common tendency to place the blame for our own personal failures, shortcomings, and sufferings on others. In particular, to shift the blame onto God himself. You know, the first instance of blame shifting we read about in the Bible comes from Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, 11, uh, it writes that God said, it says, He said, who told you that you were naked. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The man blames God's gift of the woman, and the woman blames the serpent for deceiving her. And ultimately, they both blame God for failing to adequately guard them against sin. No one accepts responsibility. No one accepts blame. They blame shift. And in the midst of suffering, according to James, there is equally a unique temptation. A temptation to blame shift. In particular, to blame God for what is happening. And James, and I believe this morning, God wants to correct our vision. Uh, This message, I've gone through about five different variations of title, but I've decided to call it Goodness from Above. And I've got two simple points this morning, but one real hope for us, uh, a hope that summarizes, according to James, the right response to suffering. I hope that that is how you can guard against wasting your suffering. And the hope is this, that even in the midst of trial, we would see that God is always unchangingly good. He is always good. Even in the midst of great trial. He is unchanging in his goodness. 
that's really what I hope that we'd see this morning. So let's dive into the text. Point one, the source of sin. Just by way of context, we've seen uh, over the last few messages that James is this pastor at a distance. He's uh, been in the midst of a church that's been persecuted from Jerusalem and it's been spread out. It's been dispersed into uh, areas surrounding Jerusalem, mainly into rural communities. And these new, mainly Jewish Jesus communities are brand new in the Jesus movement. Uh, They're new to faith, they're poor, they're persecuted, they're suffering, and they're new to Jesus. They're new to following him. And James has this collection of four sermons. It's like a mini sermon series that he writes all down to be distributed out and around to these Christians at a distance. And this first one is about, as we've seen, trials and Christian maturity. And these baby Christians were so familiar with suffering. They were refugees. They were impoverished. They were, by and large, exploited and persecuted. And James is this loving pastor who wants to help them in the midst of their trials. And he's given us already and given them already these three points of encouragement about how they should respond to the presence of trials. James helps them to see in verses 2 through to 4 that they can rejoice even in the midst of trials because trials are used by God to mature us. He helps them to see how the testing of their faith leads to steadfastness and steadfastness leads to complete maturity. Not only that, but secondly, that they can ask God for wisdom in the midst of their trials. God who generously gives wisdom to help us navigate trials and know how to be obedient and to follow him. More than that, as Dave uh, helped us to see last week, he's shown us how they can go through the Christian life and face trials with like this real confidence, a real trust in God, their eyes firmly fixed uh, on the prize, knowing that, that in the coming kingdom, riches or, or, or having nothing won't count for anything, but only faithfulness to Christ is the only thing that will last. And now James, the wise pastor, wants to pause and... And I believe he wants to warn them and also us about a way in which you can completely waste your trials. You know, C.J. Mahaney, uh, in a quote that Dave shared, uh, 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 sorry, Tim Keller, in a quote that Dave shared right back on the first message in this series, uh, writes the following um, out of his book, Walking Through God, uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says the following, he says, the stakes are high here. Suffering will either leave you a much better person or a much worse one than you were before. Trials and troubles in life which are inevitable will either make you or break you. But either way, you will not remain the same. Trials and troubles in life, they're inevitable. And they will either make us growing us stronger in our faith, or they will break us. Well, trials are used by God to bring great growth to us. They can grow us in our faith, but they can also lead to someone coming completely undone. They can really break you. And the question I'm asking is, why is that the case? Why is it that some people go through trials and... It destroys their walk with God. They become really incredibly embittered and resentful and a distrusting person. 
Whereas others are made, they thrive, they flourish in faith and in life and joy. They experience this deep intimacy in their walk. They find this new strength and capacity to love others. Well, church, I think James gives us the answer this morning to why that is the case. And we read it right here in verse 13. Listen to what James says. This is wise pastoral counsel. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he tempts himself no one. As we've seen, the context of our passage is this Jesus community that's undergoing incredible suffering. And the truth is that tied to suffering is a unique and powerful temptation to sin. Specifically, to sin by blaming God. Douglas Moo, in his commentary, writes the following. He says, Every trial, every external difficulty carries with it a temptation, an inner enticement to sin. For every trial brings temptation. Financial difficulty can cause us to question God's providence in our lives. The death of a loved one can tempt us to question God's love for us. The suffering of the righteous poor and the ease of the wicked can cause us to question God's justice or even his existence. Thus, testing almost always includes temptation. And temptation is itself a test. Suffering and temptation are uniquely linked. In the midst of profound suffering, we can be tempted to sin in some unique ways, in particular by blaming God. Now, in so many ways, I'm not really someone who's uh, equipped to really give this message because in so many ways, I mean... I've never really experienced much suffering myself personally at all. But I have seen others go through really difficult suffering. Like my parents, who have been walking for many years through just this deep darkness and seemingly suffering that has no expiry date whatsoever. And I know in the midst of that, there can be a question that comes to mind, and it's this. How can God be good? How can it be good and allow my parents to go through this? How about you? Are you suffering or is someone in, that you love in your life suffering? If someone were to ask you, how are you going? Would you say, I'm angry with God right now? How can he be good? How can he be sovereign? Isn't he unfairly testing me? Isn't this an unfair trial? Well, listen what James says. He says this. He says in verse 13, Let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You see, James wants us to see that God is perfect in goodness and holiness. He's not prone to wickedness at all. He is literally untemptable. God, although sovereign, does not directly tempt people with evil. James wants us to see. 
According to James, God is always consistently, unchangingly good. Well, if God is good, where on earth is this temptation coming from? Hasn't God stacked the cards against me? Isn't this entire situation very unfair? Well, pay very careful attention to these words. This image is horrific. Read what James says. He says the following, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Who is to blame for our temptation to sin in the midst of trials? According to James, we are. It's our own, and you can insert, wicked desires. Our desires, they lure and entice us. James is borrowing words from the language of fishing. You know, James grew up with Jesus in Nazareth on the Sea of Galilee. And although they were carpenters, they would have been very familiar with fishermen who would have been common in their village. It was, after all, a fishing community. That word entice, it's, it's the word that describes the bait on a hook. It superficially looks so appealing and yet it conceals a horrible snag. That word lure, like the bait when grabbed, it pulls away. It drags you away. And this is what our sinful desires are doing to us when we experience temptation. Read on with me, verse 15. Then, having enticed and lured, then desire, when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It's this horrific image. Literally, desire falls pregnant, and inside, as it conceives, sin grows. And as sin grows, it's born, and and it grows up again, and the result is death. You know, I I, I read this passage, and in, in my mind, like, I see... Uh, the Ridley Scott 1986 film Aliens. And um, if you're familiar with the plot line, some of you are too young, but um, um, there's these... Uh, it's, uh, her name is uh, Ellen Ripley, and uh, she's, uh, that's uh, Sigourney Weaver, and she's trapped in this spaceship with this uh, kind of alien that's on board called a facehugger. And they're called facehuggers because it's this horrible situation where they latch onto your face... And impregnate you with one of their alien babies that then like grows inside of you until finally like breaks out and it's a new alien baby. And and it's this horrific horror film, right? Sci-fi horror. And and here's what James is saying. If temptation is toyed with, it conceives inside you and grows into sin. And the fruit is, of sin, death. It's this horrific image. Douglas Moo says again in his uh, commentary, he says, Temptation, James has said, involves the innate, that's inner, desire toward evil, as it is enticed by the superficial attractiveness of sin. 
If a person should welcome rather than resist temptation, desire conceives. And if not turned away immediately, it produces sin. Sin, it can look so innocuous, so harmless. And so we can find ourselves toying with it, playing with it rather than fleeing. And the Christians that James is writing to, they must have felt so much temptation in the midst of their trial. Think about it. Temptation to envy their wealthy landlords. Temptation to covet their wealthy landlords' possessions. Temptation to lash out at those who are persecuting them. Temptation to perhaps even compromise on their faith. To be angry with God. And James here is trying to shock us. He's trying to placard in front of us, stop. Don't play around with sinful desire. It looks so good, but behind it is a nasty barb, a hook, a trap, death. I just want to pause at this point and just as a note, to remind us that temptation is not the same as sin. Mu says in his commentary, temptation is an inner enticement to sin. But it isn't sin itself. You know, one thing I've seen over the years is that sometimes Christians who have like a really tender conscience and who are constantly aware of the many temptations that they're facing can begin to assume in the midst of their temptations, that they're distant from God. But the Christian life, it's not a life that's free from temptation. The Christian life consists not in freedom from temptation, but in resisting temptation. You know, the writer of the Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as as we are, yet without sin. You know, if that's you, someone who has a tender conscience, who's aware of many different temptations that you're facing, I just want to say to you, the experience of faithfully resisting temptation, it's not a sign of distance from God. It's a sign of nearness to God. Because we're most like Christ. When in suffering, we resist temptation and we cling to faithfulness. But we've all seen the destructive path of sin, haven't we? We've all seen how it starts so small and it, and it grows. Things like success. How he was shocked when he first received the offer into medicine. He couldn't believe that all that study had finally paid off. But he never expected the demands that ensued. Juggling family with late hours, being on call and fellowship exams. It all started when he stopped reading the Bible. I could use that extra time to prepare for the morning rounds, he told himself. And pretty soon he had stopped praying as well. He had so much on his plate, he just didn't have time for it. In another season, things would be easier. Eventually, he found Sunday mornings harder and harder to justify. What's the point of gathering when I could just as easily listen online, he told himself. 
It wasn't until many years later that a colleague asked him in passing whether he was religious at all, that he finally noticed how cold to Christ his heart had become. Baited. Lured. Death. Or lust. She was just appreciating the beauty of the male form, she told herself, as she repeatedly allowed her eyes to wander at the gym. But before too long, she was harboring a dirty secret. She had started looking at porn. She was insatiable in her appetite for it. As she found herself at home alone, watching hours upon hours of increasingly poor videos. Pretty soon, however, not even the videos could satisfy her appetite, and she began to toy with an idea. What if she accepted the invitation for drinks that her manager had repeatedly offered her? Sure, he was married, but they were practically separated. The fantasy was exhilarating, baited, lured, death, danger. But James is not out to condemn us. He's out to warn us and to encourage us to remain faithful to following Jesus. How do we know? Read with me verse 16. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Brothers. Brothers in Christ. Part of the family of God. This is a loving reminder for those that are already in Christ. So when going through trials we are faced with unique temptations. In particular, the temptation to blame shift and to blame God for our difficulties. And James is a loving pastor who's out to warn us. Don't bite the baited hook of temptation to sin in the midst of trial. It leads only to death. And don't sin by blaming God. He's not the source of your temptation. Your evil desires are. And that's point one, the source of sin. Not just point one, the source of sin. Point two, the source of good. James doesn't just want to help us to see that we're responsible for our own sin. He wants to adjust our gaze to completely reframe the way we see God. Read with me again, verse 16 and 17. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, there's a temptation in the midst of trial to be deceived. Deception. To have wrong thoughts about God. Specifically, to have harsh thoughts. To begin to believe that God is cold, that God is distant, that God is unloving, that God is uncaring. But know what he says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It's such wise pastoral counsel. Without exception, all good gifts 
in our lives come from God. If there is anything that is good at all in our lives, God is responsible. God is the author. More than that, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The Father of lights, that that expression is a reference to Genesis. It's the God who said, let there be light in the beginning. Every tiny detail of this world was created by and is sustained by God himself. All you have to do to see the wonder of his work is just to look up. To look up at the stars in the sky. You know, you don't have to go far to see the beauty of God's creation. I was going for a walk just around Thornley uh, during the week as I was trying to prepare for this message. And as I was just walking, I just stopped and saw just the beauty of a tree. And just this majestic tall tree with all of its leaves and trunk and just the details involved. And I thought, isn't God so amazing? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't his works fantastic? Even just lying uh, on a, uh, down on the ground on a beautiful clear night and just to look at the stars in the sky and to think that our God made all of this. And that he sustains it. We are surrounded by goodness and the heavens declare the glory of God. More than that, he says, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You know, unlike us who are constantly changing or even, listen to this, unlike the stars which change over billions of years, God never changes. He is always the same in his goodness. A billion years from now, God will still be entirely, unchangingly good. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from him. How can we know this? How can we know for sure that God really is entirely good? Well, C.J. Mahaney says the following. He says, Often in trials, particularly ones that are painful and perplexing and prolonged, it can be so difficult to detect the goodness of God. You are not going to be able to detect the goodness of God working back from your trial and suffering. It doesn't work that way. But there is one place where he has definitively displayed his goodness, a place that should convince us of his goodness. And James directs our attention to that place with this reference to the word of truth. That place is a hill called Calvary. There is one place we can see the goodness of God. There is one place we can see the goodness of God, even in the midst of trial, so clearly, and that is Calvary. You know, uh, in his book, uh, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller notes that Anne Voskamp, in her book, 1,000 Gifts, um, she shares this journey to understand the senseless death of her sister who was crushed by a truck at the age of two. And in the end, she concludes that The primary issue, whether we trust God's character or not, 
Is he really loving? Is he really just? Well, her conclusion is this. She says the following. God gave us Jesus. If God didn't withhold from us his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips? How will he not also graciously give us all things he deems right and best? He's already given us the incomprehensible. Isn't that so true? We can trust God's goodness because he's earned our trust. He's earned our trust on Calvary. We can know God is truly good by looking at the cross. At the cross, our images of God are completely shattered as we realize God was so committed to loving us that even his most precious gift, even his own son, he did not withhold. More that on that cross, Christ absorbed the righteous anger of God in full for us. You know, as I was reading this week, I came across these words about Christ on the cross from Robert Murray McChain. Uh, he was a pastor who, who died really young at the age of 30 uh, back in the 18th century. And he writes the following. He says of the cross, he was without any comforts of God. No feeling that God loved him. No feeling that God pitied him. No feeling that God supported him. God was his son before. Now that son became all darkness. He was without God. He was as if he had no God. All that God had been to him before was now taken from him. He was godless. Deprived of his God. He had the feeling of the condemned when the judge says... Depart from me, you cursed, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He felt that God said the same to him. I feel like a little child casting a stone into some deep ravine in the mountainside and listening to hear its fall, but listening all in vain. Ah, this is the hell that Christ suffered. The ocean of Christ's sufferings is unfathomable. He was forsaken in the place of sinners. If you close with him as your surety, you will never be forsaken. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer? For me. For me. How can we know that God is good even in the midst of the trial? He sent his son to die for us. He sent his son to hang on that tree in our place that we could enjoy him forever. Isn't he scandalously good? Isn't he incredible in his goodness? But there's still more. He didn't just send Christ to die. Read with me verse 18. He said, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There's more still. He caused us 
to be born again. For what purpose? Why did he cause us to be born again? It was simply of his own will. Because he wanted to. Alec Motyer says the following in his commentary. He says, Here is the greatness of the divine mercy. The sufficiency of the divine strength. And the depth of the divine condescension. He has come right down to us in our death. He has raised us up into life. And it is all due to a rich mercy prompted by a great love. It is no more possible for us to be agents or contributors to our new birth than it was for us to be so in our natural birth. All the work from initial choice to completed deed is his. And so is all the glory. But there is something else as well. Inherent in the great truth of the new birth is the security of our salvation. Were salvation to depend on my choice... It will be as certain as my will, which fluctuates, blows hot and cold, and reflects my divided, fallen nature. But it is his choice. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And until his will changes, his word alters, or his truth is proved false, my salvation cannot be threatened or forfeited. Isn't that a beautiful truth? It's not just that he sent Christ to die for us. It's that by his own will, he then raised us up to life. Church, isn't he good? Isn't he majestic in his goodness? And whether we're aware of it or not, whether in trial or prosperity, God is constantly raining down upon us good gifts. Every good and every perfect gift is coming down to us constantly from the Father of lights. There's good gifts all around us. And His goodness is most clearly seen at the cross. But also in the fact that He's given us new life. Well, there is only one true source of good, and that is God himself. Well, I wanted to uh, close this morning with an, an application, and, and it's a simple application. And I know that here this morning there's people in different groups. I know that for some here this morning, you're walking through a trial, and things are difficult for you. And I know even more particularly, some people here this morning, I know, are going through a trial, and it's a trial that has no end in sight, no expiry date whatsoever. It's seemingly an indefinite, never-ending trial. All of us today, whether we're going through a trial or not, well, we will eventually go through trials. So maybe you're awaiting a trial, a trial that is just around the corner. Surely as sparks fly upwards, troubles will come in Christian life. We know, it's, we know it's for sure. And there's really just one simple application that I believe James and, and, and God has for us this morning as we consider this first sermon on trials and Christian maturity. And that simple application is this. It's for us to develop an attitude of gratitude. 
what's the right response to the text we've been reading this morning? It's to be grateful. It's to rejoice even in the midst of our trials. It's to have a right perspective of who God is and what he's like. And it's to be grateful. You know, it's so easy to succumb to the temptation to blame God. To be angry towards God. It's so easy to have so much and yet to be so unaware of God's grace all around us. To be more aware of the things that God seems to be holding back from us than the things that he's already given us. And the message of the cross that we've been looking at this morning really shows us that God's goodness, it's not just great, it's immeasurable. And so, by way of application, I just wanted to and felt this morning that God is, God is calling us, I think, to respond with gratefulness. And I wanted to do a few things to kind of help us to that end, things that I've found helpful and things that just practically can help us, I believe, this morning to grow in gratefulness and, and to have our lives changed by that. Uh, the first thing you should have got this morning on your way in is a little bookmark that um, Charlotte and I have made up for you guys. And it has written on it what I think is the key verse, the verse that really unlocks this whole uh, first sermon. That's verse 17. And it says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And... I think a first application you could do this week to change your life, to grow to more, to become a grateful, a more grateful person is just to memorize this. You know, I'd love for you to just pop it in your Bible so you can see it every day when you open your Bible or to put it in some place where you're just going to be forced to see it and review it every day. Maybe stick to the microwave or the fridge or tape it to the back of the remote control so that every time you change the channel, you can turn it over and read it. Just find some way that you can put this in your heart, this treasure, this gift from God, this verse. Uh, That's the first thing that I thought for us this week. Another thing that I've been really challenged about and really a way in which God has grown me, I believe, by his grace to be more grateful, uh, is just by taking time every day to pause and just think of three specific things that you could thank God for in that day. Make them not general, but specific things. You know, there's so many things that we experience every day that are graces from God that we just don't even think to give thanks for. You know, I was challenged uh, listening to a guy I like to listen to preach, uh, Jeff Mannion from Ada Bible Church. And he was even saying something like, you know, when was the last time you thanked God for a specific meal that you just had the chance to eat? And I mean, it sounds so simple and, and easy, but doesn't it just point to the lack of gratitude in a prosperous place like this where you can have so much, just to not even be thankful for the food we enjoy every single day? When was the last time you paused and, 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 and just thanked God for a favorite item of clothing that you wear? And I was here and I was thinking to myself, man, I so rarely thank God. When was the time, last time you thanked God for the health you enjoy? You know, so often working in hospitals as a physio, it's not until you lose it that you realize how good you once had it. Gifts from God 
constantly raining down on us. And I want to challenge you to a one-month challenge. I challenge you to, for the rest of the month until this time next month, to try just write down three things that you could thank God for, three specific things every day that you could thank thank God for. Maybe it's a, a close friend or someone at church and the way you see them serve and how that blesses you. Write it on down. You know, by the end of a month, you'll have a hundred different things, specific things that you can thank God for. And I believe that's a step towards uh, becoming a person of gratitude, something that I feel I need to grow in so much. You know, studies say that after six weeks, uh, that pattern of thanking God for specific things, that, that skill will become a habit. That will be your new habit to constantly be in the business of thanking God for his good gifts. But finally, and most specifically, I think the best way we can apply this and grow in an attitude of gratitude is just to spend time every day thanking him for the cross. Thanking him for the wonder of the cross that Christ my King would die for me my sins, his blood, my wrath, his life. Well, church, I trust this morning, regardless of whether you're in a trial or not, that you've seen that God is always, God is unchangingly good. Why don't we close in prayer as the band comes up. Lord, this morning, we want to offer a, for many of us, a prayer of repentance. Lord, I'm so sorry that so often I lack gratitude for your many, many good gifts. Lord, I'm sorry that so often I fail to even see them in the first place. Lord, I pray for us as a church. Would you open our eyes to your unchanging goodness? A goodness that's most clearly seen in the death of your son on the cross. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, before we sing, Jen Bush had something that she felt the Lord put on her heart for today. I just want you to listen to her as well. Um, I just had a sense that <clears throat> there are some people here who are facing trials, and it might be that um, someone you love is not walking with Jesus or some ingrained pattern of sin. Um, but um, or illness, um, and I just had a sense that it's it's harder for you because of the way you view God, and you might view Him as um, vindictive, like punishing you for something, or um, just cold and uninterested. And I just felt um, that I w- that God wanted me to read Hosea 11, just some excerpts from it, and just to remind us what God is really like. And when it says Israel and Ephraim, just insert your own name. When Israel was a child, I loved him. 
It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms. They didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And that literally means gave them space to breathe. And I bent down and fed them. Um, And it says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me, and my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And I think I just want to thank God that he is so good and he is working for our good.